0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts, and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this morning. I'm Jeff Cutmore with Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. US inflation hitting its highest level since November 1981. Quite hot inflation at 9.1%, sparking expectations for a bumper 100 basis point hike this month from the Federal Reserve. The recession warning gets louder as the inversion between the twos and 10-year Treasury yields widens to its most since the year 2000.
1: Well, here's a headline we've probably said a few times over the years. Italy's ruling coalition at risk of collapse. Uh, yeah, this time, though, because uh, Giuseppe Conte's populist five-star movement signals it will boycott a crucial spending vote today. And U.S. President Mr. Biden touching down in Tel Aviv for the first leg of a four-day tour of the Middle East as he faces increasing pressure from key allies to outline a plan to constrain Iran.
2: The not thing worse than the Iran that exists now around nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And if we can return to the deal and hold them tight, I think it was a gigantic mistake for the last president to get out of the deal.
3: And one of the world's largest cryptocurrency lenders, Celsius, becomes the latest casualty of the crypto winter, filing Chapter 11 bankruptcy a month after freezing withdrawals.
0: U.S. inflation surged to 9.1% in June, which was ahead of the forecasts and the highest reading since November 1981. The data now putting further pressure on the Federal Reserve to act more aggressively at the next meeting with Fed Funds Futures, now pointing to a 100 basis point hike this month. June's hot inflation print driven by strong gains in energy, gasoline and food prices with airline fares being one of the few areas to see declines. The U.S. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo told CNBC the White House will support the Fed's actions. I'm not going to talk about what the Fed should do, but what I'm going to say is that what the President has said that prices remain too high in the United States of America. And that's why we've got to do everything we can to bring them down. And as you know well, it's not an American phenomenon at all. It's a global phenomenon. And that's why we want to give the Fed the room to do what they're going to do. Well, the increased bets on a 100 basis point Fed hike came after the Bank of Canada surprised markets with a full percentage point rate rise. The first G7 country to take an aggressive uh, stance of this kind in this economic cycle. Officials hike rates to 2.5%, the biggest increase in 24 years. Governor Tiff Macklem said the bigger than expected hike reflects, quote, very unusual, exceptional circumstances.
3: Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic indicated he is open to further aggressive tightening, saying quite everything is in play ahead of the FOMC's next meeting later this month. Bostic was reacting to the stronger-than-expected inflation reading, adding he needs to examine the report in order to see how much he needs to adapt his stance. Meanwhile, Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin acknowledged the near-term risk of a recession, but said the economy would perform better in the medium term if inflation is under control. The Fed's Beige Book economic survey has signalled a growing risk of recession, with businesses expecting demand to weaken over the next six to 12 months. The report showed that corporates expressing concern over inflation, with many respondents expecting elevated prices to last through until least the end of the year. No, that
1: can't be true. Let me cost? just check your read. That can't be true. That can't be true. I'll tell you why in a second. The report showed corporates expressing concern over inflation, while many respondents expecting elevated prices to last through until the end. No, that's not true because we had Brian Deese already from the White House, uh, I believe, talking yeah. about. No, it's stale data, and we also had the White House afterwards talking about. Oh, it's okay. This data is already out of date. Well. I'm apolitical, as viewers know. I don't care if you're Republican, Democrat, Labour or Tory, whatever. I'm I'm going to step aside on this one and say, well, that's just nonsense coming out from the White House, isn't it? Let's be honest about it. The fact of the matter is they are desperately worried now about inflation and what it means for Americans ahead of the midterms as well. So they are desperately talking down the data, desperately saying it's stale, desperately saying the gasoline data is out of date as well. There is a slight problem for this and the White House and the fact is that the core inflation which strips out gasoline, which strips out a lot of those costs for food as well, uh, actually is looking really sticky, uh, Mr Deese, and looking really sticky, uh, White House. So look, here you go. The core index rose by more than expected, up 0.7 of 1%. The broad-based gains, nothing to do with gasoline, nothing to do with food, shelter was up 0.6, new vehicles up 1.6. Um, you saw medical care up 0.7%, motor vehicle insurance up 1.9% as well. So whilst there is some accuracy in the fact that gasoline prices have fallen from their 5 bucks national average, and whilst there is some accuracy that Brent and WTI prices have come off from a 120 handle down to about $100, the fact of the matter is the fear for the White House, which it's trying to dismiss, is the fact that this is becoming more entrenched. Now, we know that wages aren't keeping up at the moment. With inflation, but these core prices are looking really worried and sticky, Uh, and that's my first point. I actually, I'll get you guys coming because I've got something else to say in a bit.
3: It's about the peaks and troughs now, isn't it? How high inflation goes, how low any economic contraction goes. It's not necessarily about uh, what type of uh, recession or stagflation or the scenario we're talking about. It is the extent of any um, increase in prices from here and just how sticky the prices remain because I think we'll all agree we're at very elevated levels. So how quickly we can come off that peak is very important when it comes to inflation and just how successful... Central banks, governments are avoiding that trough, just how deep into recession we go in some of these economies. That is quite key now as we talk about the potential for a 100 basis point move. I think many of us would sit back and say, well, look, when it comes to policy-making terms, short, sharp shocks to the market make a difference. And if you get 100 basis points, we could say this is too much all at once. You could have a market now saying that the Fed is overreacting or it's panicking, and that is not a positive signal to the markets. Well, so I think they panicking,
1: there are, is it? It's got 1.75% rate and a 9% inflation level. One
3: percent could be seen as panicking instead of a 75 basis well, They were point trolled
1: negative. by. I love the tweet that said, "Is the Bank of Canada trolling the Fed?" <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, what was surprising, I think, was was just that, that market
0: reaction wasn't very extreme. No. So it was a, and that's that for me is fascinating, and that perhaps suggest to you that the market is already trying to front run the idea of rapid declines in interest rates once we see the break in, the, the in this inflation data, hence the curve. Yeah. So what are, you know, central banks can do two things, right? They, they can uh, fight inflation or they can fight recessionary trends, but they can't do this at the same time. They have to take one course or the other. And clearly what's happening at the moment is the central banks have decided inflation is a bigger threat going forward than recession. So we'll deal with the inflation first. But the markets are already trying to price in the pivot when it comes where central banks suddenly decide you know what we think we've broken the back of this let's get on to now fighting the recession yeah. the problem that the central banks have got in a sense is as always they need the politicians in governments to work hand in glove with them and we know that you can beat inflation by hiking interest rates and killing demand but you can also address inflation by Addressing the supply side problems that are causing it in the first place in this context, you can politically try and address the geopolitical issues that are causing inflation. You can address some of the structural inefficiencies, particularly here in Europe, that are causing inflation. Are our governments doing that hand in glove with central Just banks that comment. only have one tool, Just which is putting up interest rates?
1: Just one more comment. I did laugh. You know, the close period before the fed meeting starts on saturday yeah so you've got a close period where the fed governors can't say a word ahead of it and their close period is about 12 days so it goes from the 16th of july which is saturday to the 28th so just after the fed decision yeah what's hilarious is i I saw a piece of commentary said but they've only got a limited window before saturday before they can communicate to the market the hundred basis points if it's going to happen with the now everyone thinks there's an 82 percent chance right well that's Blooming hilarious because you remember how suddenly, mm. during the close period, you'll all know this. During the close period last time, suddenly everyone and its mum, from the Goldman's to every market analyst, suddenly decided, "Oh, it's seventy-five baseball. points. It's going to happen. No problem whatsoever." how did that get communicated last time during the close period? No-one's still giving me an answer to that.
0: Well, I'd I'd stay close to the phone, because if they're phoning journalists to tell them informally that this is the direction we're headed in, you might get a call. Oh, did
1: you know what? That'll be the wrong Steve. It'll be Leasman (laughs) they're (laughs) after.
3: Let's uh, move on to some corporate news. Uh, Just crossing the wires. Deutsche Telekom this morning. It's a decision around some infrastructure. The company has decided uh, the sale of 51% stake in GD Towers at 17 18.5 Point five billion euros in enterprise value. Deutsche Telekom will retain a 49% stake in the business, with significant minority protection rights, maintaining sizable exposure to future value upside in this attractive telecom infrastructure asset. Uh, according to the release, favorable master lease agreement and joint governance setup enables them to continue mobile network leadership of anchor tenants Deutsche uh, Telekom Deutschland and Magenta Austria. So the estimated cash proceeds of 10.7 billion euros to be used for deleveraging at Deutsche Telekom, an acceleration of path towards 50.1% targeted stake in T-Mobile U.S. The transaction expected to close at the end of 2022. Just a quick line on this company in particular, Deutsche Telekom, one we've spoken about a lot around this T-Mobile and consolidation story in the States. It's been a performer year-to-date, up almost 18%, and I don't think we can say that about a lot of stocks that have gained double digits over the course of this year.
0: And that surprised me, actually, when I looked at the chart on the back of this story, because I thought, oh, Deutsche Telecom, oh, utility, uh, it's not going to have done that well year-to-date. But 20% upside yeah. uh, on the six-month story. Um, perhaps a lot of people like that 3%-plus yield. Bill Smead joins us, CIO at Smead Capital Management. Bill, good morning to you. You heard what we were discussing there with regard to the inflation story. How does this affect the decisions you're now making as an asset allocator?
2: Well, we're we're pickers, and we made the decision about two years ago. We saw a chart that went back 250 years, and it showed that commodities were the cheapest relative to common stocks, in those 250 years. So we made a major pivot and we had been prepared to make that pivot for quite a while because the thing that everyone, at least in the United States or estimates is that there are 92 million millennials primarily in the 27 to 42 year old age bracket. And the last time we saw what we call Wolverine inflation, which is inflation that is hard for policymakers to stop was when seventy-five million baby boomers had replaced forty-four million silent generation people in the nineteen seventies. See what everyone's not including in the conversation is what really causes inflation, which is too many people with too much money chasing too few goods. So we have in the United States a whole lot of people twenty-seven. 27- that postponed adult and home buying, and car buying for about seven years later than most generations. But in the last two years, they've all the party together, and this is just the beginning of a ten to twelve-year time period where there's about fifty percent more people that are wanting these things than there was in the prior prior group. So the Fed can tighten credit, but the Reduce the number of people wanting these necessities in comparison to the prior group.
0: Bill, we got a slightly dodgy line, but we're going to persist. Um, hopefully, it'll work itself out as the connection holds. Uh, Bill, so I look at your notes here, and you say uh, tech is dead. What do you mean by tech is dead? When is the right time to go back into this sector?
2: We took a look at. The last decade, what the ten large companies in the world were at the end of each decade, and not a single time in the following ten years, those ten stocks beat the S and P five hundred. And in two of the of of the four decades, they lost a lot of money in the fall ten years. So if you think back to the dot com bubble. Charlie Unger says financial euphoria episode that ended a year ago was the biggest he'd ever seen because of the totality of it. Well, we think besides inflation that unwinding the financial euphoria episode is what this is about. And if you study all last euphoria episode, it was a decade before they put the nifty 50 back together. It was 10 years before they put the dot-com stock back together. Microsoft was 15 years without making a new high. Cisco's new high, and Intel has never made a new high. Therefore, ideas idea versus that we're winning the race the last 10 years, once this bear market gets over, are going to be the new leaders, defies all economic history.
1: Uh, Bill, just a quick one from me. Uh, JP Morgan kicking off the earnings season as well. Everyone suddenly decided they're worried about the E part of the PE as well. What, what are you expecting out of this earnings season? Is it all about the outlook or is it something else we need to look at? Well, uh,
2: we're excited about the E because we have 25% of our portfolio in oil stocks. And you, you folks in your discussion, we're hitting on the right point. If you do have all these millennials, you need to increase supply. And we just spent four years starving oil and gas companies from capital and shaming them into not poking holes in the ground. Hence, the President of the United States wants to uh, revive oil production in Iran uh, to him.
1: Mr. Smeed, we're going to leave it there. A bit of a dodgy line, but we got the message. Uh, Nice to see you, Bill. Thank you very much indeed for your time, as ever. Bill Smead, the CIO. Of Smead Capital Management, I join us from Phoenix, a lovely place.
3: We've got to talk more about central banks. As over in Singapore, the central bank has also tightened monetary policy in a surprise off-cycle move. The Monetary Authority of Singapore said it will recenter the midpoint of its exchange rate policy band, known as the nominal effective exchange rate. The announcement marks the fourth tightening move in nine months, as the central bank looks to slow inflation. Japan's chief cabinet secretary has expressed concern over currency depreciation as the growing global divergence in monetary policy puts pressure on the yen. The Japanese currency is trading at levels not seen since September 1998, with the Bank of Japan expected to maintain its ultra-easy policy when it meets next week.
1: 1.38. Wow. Uh, Coming up on this uh, show, the former UK chancellor, it's actually Rishi Sunak, Emerges as the front runner for the Conservative Party after the first round of votes. We'll have some more on this next. And I'm told the podcast is, uh, it's all right.
0: Yeah, I think there's a decent conversation about inflation in there, which is uh, what everybody wants to hear about at the moment, given that print was the highest since 1981. Do check out the Squawk Box podcast. We'll be right back, everybody. Italy's five-star movement will not take part in a parliamentary confidence vote in Mario Draghi's government today. Party leader Giuseppe Conte has said... The vote due at 12 CET is pegged to a €26 billion euro package of aid to tackle growing social pressures on consumers amid rising inflation and energy prices. After a day of intense discussions, Conte announced uh, late yesterday that he will not support the vote on the grounds that struggling Italians need more support than uh, being proposed by the government prime minister draghi has ruled out any possibility of a new coalition without the five-star movement
1: uh, uk, uh, UK uh, chancellor vik sheka Nadim zahawi and the former foreign secretary jeremy hunt are out of the running to be prime minister after failing to win the support of 30 conservative lawmakers which was the minimum they needed to get through to the next round. The former chancellor, Rishi Sunak, has taken an early lead in the contest with 88 votes. Trade Minister Penny Mordaunt uh, came a surprise second after a YouGov poll of party members found she would win a final vote if it were held today. And of course that final vote would be... Amongst the party members throughout the country, not the lawmakers in Westminster. Now, lawmakers will vote in the second round today with candidates set to be whittled down to a final two before Parliament breaks for summer. Uh, I think by the Thursday they're gonna do this actually, by the 21st. I mean it's moving quickly, as indeed we thought we would. I think one of uh, one uh, one or two things that are interesting, surprising, not surprising, pretty patel didn't even go through of it she's the home secretary and yeah. we know that she's after the same vote pretty much as Liz Truss and Suela Braverman the uh, foreign secretary and the attorney general so i think yeah. that the the right wing of the party is trying to think now who is the best candidate we can try and put forward into the final two uh, Suela Bravman, my understanding is, looking at the pundits in the lobby and elsewhere, is that she's going to struggle to be that candidate for the right. So it could well coalesce around Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. Liz Truss, by the way, who voted Remain um, and has a very interesting political journey. Do you know her mother? Um, I, I heard a, an interview of her. Her mother used to take her on CND marches when she was a young child. So, comes from the very left wing then into the Conservative Party, Remainer, and now um, a very much diehard Brexiteer as well. I should mention briefly the favourites, of course, being, at the moment, Rishi Sunak has uh, quite a large vote, and then Penny Mordaunt, who not a lot of our viewers have heard of over the years. Uh, she's, I think, a Royal Navy Rever- Reservist, former Defence Secretary. She lost that job to Ben Wallace as well, now a Trade Minister, and um, appears to be quite popular amongst the, uh, the, the, the party.
0: And her father was a paratrooper. Uh, and both of her parents actually died relatively young, so right. she had to become independent very quickly, um, but had a career in public relations, I believe, right. after getting a degree in Reading.
3: The fact that we're having to flesh out who these people are, I think, is interesting to the international audience. And that was the point I want to come back to. I mean, Jeremy Hunt was saying it's an excellent list of candidates. Is it, when you look at history and the quality of candidates put forward now, would you say it's an excellent list, an excellent lineup we have here? It's a
1: very typical list, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it. You've got, you had two chances of the exche- three chances of these exchequers. Um, of course, Sajid Javid fell at the, the first hurdle as well, didn't even get to the minimum number of votes. So... Um, I don't know. It depends what you think of them. I mean, are we talking as individuals or indeed their curriculum vitae? Because, I mean, there's some very heavy weight cabinet experience. I mean, if you look at Nadeem Zahawi, who, perhaps surprising to some, not surprising to others, again, fell at a very early hurdle. This is a man who perhaps there might have been trust issues about, given the fact that he uh, got, um, got was out of the government mm. then in the government as Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, and then told within 24 hours, the Prime Minister to resign. So Nadim Zahawi perhaps uh, having... And the questions about his his financial status as well, I mean, that's something that in question time yesterday, which I don't know if you trod through as much as I did. I listened to the whole of question time yesterday. I don't Mm. know why, but I did. Um, Keir Starmer got his six questions, and he was very, very clearly trying to go over to issues about non-DOM status. Uh, of potentially the former chancellors, what and, and the current chancellor. And it was a very interesting point where he accused. Let me get this right. Nadim Zahawi of being the member of parliament for Stratford and Gibraltar. Um, of course, we don't have a member of parliament for Gibraltar, and it is seen as potentially a bit of a tax haven. So uh, that, that was a, a decent line by um, the leader of the opposition.
3: If you look at two of the names you just mentioned, Rishi and Nadim. Both of them effectively turned on Boris Johnson. So, as we talk about a phase now of more integrity and uh, having certain standards, do those two names have natural challenges now if we are looking well, for? So, is out. Shane anyway, Shane. so.
1: Yeah. Well, in um, terms
3: of being in part of the cabinet as well as we look for well, a new wave of
1: politicians. There's a question: Do you are you seen as more trustworthy because you stayed in your role regardless of the shenanigans going in politics? You stayed there because you ne- you were needed by the country to be that minister uh, holding the uh, I don't know the tiller on the ship or whatever you call it in nautical terms. Or actually, are you seen as more duplicitous because you stuck with a government that clearly uh, had credibility issues as well? Um, I don't know the answer. I think it depends on individual voters.
0: Uh, I think there are a couple of other issues to, to throw into the mix here as well um you pointed this out yesterday and i think it remains truism that the parliamentary party is voting for one candidate the conservative party is voting for another candidate and that's where some of the tension lies here because obviously the parliamentary party gets to propose the two candidates effectively that go forward then for the rest of the Conservative Party to vote on and from the polling it would appear that Penny Morden is very popular with the Conservative Party outside of London and the Metro elite Um, whether she is that popular with the parliamentary party remains to be seen because I think, as as you 've pointed out, she remains a little bit of an unknown quantity in political terms she hasn 't really nailed her colours to the mast in terms of what she truly believes. she goes along the line of uh, being you know fairly conservative um, in terms of her liberal approach to economics and uh, I would guess conservative in terms of her approach to social issues but I'm not sure everybody understands completely what she really stands for at this stage but the fact that she's running a campaign which is she argues less about the leader and more about the ship which is how she's described her campaign I think is interesting because it's a bit like all that excitement we had over banking after the global financial crisis and everybody said we want to go back to boring banking Mm well i think in a sense that maybe the conservative party wants to get away from this focus on sleaze this focus on the nastiness of policies imposed around immigration and so on and so forth and they want a candidate who perhaps doesn't get headlines for the wrong reasons like boris johnson did um, and it would appear that she fits the bill for that the question is going forward to twenty twenty four slash twenty five is she a candidate that could win an election, a general election, if the issue went to the country, and that's a different question.
3: There are two different points here, really: the winnability and election at a ballot box versus skill set. Who is the right person for the job? But if you think about all the different challenges now, you've got a war in Ukraine, so you need to be strong on foreign policy. You need to be able to adapt when it comes to a strategy uh, positioning with, with the Western allies. Uh, cost of living crisis. You need to know a lot about the energy market, how you're going to work on those dynamics, and also perhaps tackle supply chain logistics here, which is something we've spoken about the supply side. Uh, The other points around uh, unionisation, labour law, uh, having some ability to interact with workers who are feeling that the cost of living crisis at this point. I think whoever comes in is going to have to have a very strong skill set and be able to learn very quickly on the job if they don't have that background experience across all those portfolios. But we
0: we have an unwritten constitution in a sense, so you can make the job what you want to. I
1: got pulled up on that by a constitutional expert, uncodified apparently. But
0: you can make that job what you want it to be, can't you? And and that's the point of the the nature of, we don't have a presidential system so I think I I agree with you that there are lots of important issues that the government needs to take a line on but the prime minister doesn't have to be that person there is a, a cabinet of people and a civil service of people that will keep this country running and will will be instrumental in making sure that those decisions are taken
3: but the responsibility then lies with the prime minister He's going to have to well, explain it to the public yes, as to why no. it was a good I mean, or bad decision. There is
1: the concept of primus inter pares as well, which is just first among equals. You are only a, a cabinet men- member with cab- uh, with collective security at the end of the day. Um, anyway, uh, you would mentioned uh, unionisation. Yeah,
3: it sort of set it up nicely for this story, I think, as we talk about what's happening across the country. as British Rail workers are set to go on strike again on the 27th of July after rejecting a, quote, paltry pay offer. Two other rail unions are also considering dates for industrial action weeks after the country ground to a halt in June. This as UK inflation sits at a 40-year high and the government approves plans allowing agency workers to replace those on strike. SAS will resume negotiations with unions representing its striking pilots today after failing to come to a collective bargaining agreement. This is pilots for the Scandinavian airline prepared to enter their 11th day of industrial action. SAS has filed for bankruptcy protection in the United States as it seeks to restructure its business, which has taken an estimated hit of up to $130 million since the strike began.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more
1: market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
3: Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.